Gresham College Presents Roman Singing and Its Influence Across Europe by Professor Christopher Page. The Pope, you might say, is really nobody very special. Well, I'm not saying that to placate the wandering ghost of John Rogers, who was once the rector of this very church. He was martyred, you may remember, for his Protestant faith in the reign of Queen Mary. No, I'm simply describing the situation as it was many hundred years ago in Christian Europe. As everybody knows, or everybody used to, the word Pope is derived from Papa, meaning father or daddy. And in the early centuries of the church, a bishop anywhere in the Latin West might be called a Pope, a Holy Father. Yet the meaning of the term was rapidly and revealingly narrowed to mean the Bishop of Rome only. So we begin with what Rome, the eternal city, meant. Well, in the early Middle Ages, it was difficult to deny, I think, the claim that Rome marked the Western extreme that the first apostolic missions were able to reach. The record of Paul's travels to the city, his extensive letter to the Christians there, and the tradition that Peter was martyred on Vatican Hill left little room for an alternative account. You can see why. Well, some of you may even remember the day in the summer of 1968 when Pope Paul VI announced that bones claimed to be those of St. Peter had been discovered under the basilica. Rome, situated more or less in the middle of the Italian peninsula, dividing the Mediterranean into two maritime zones, east and west, was the natural bridgehead for the advance of the Christian faith from its Palestinian home into the Western Empire. Just as Acts of the Apostles identifies visitors from Rome amongst those in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, so the apocryphal Acts of Peter, probably of the later second century, describes how Peter traveled to Rome on a trading ship, then preached in the city until he suffered martyrdom there. In a letter of the year 411, Pope Innocent I shows what all this had come to mean. He presents a sweeping vision of the Christian West as a Roman colony, nothing less, established under the direction of Peter. And I quote him, It is plain that in all Italy, the Gauls and Spains, Africa and Sicily, and the islands lying between, no churches have been founded save those where the venerable apostle Peter or his successor established bishops. Let them seek in their records whether any other possible can be found for these provinces or is said in book to have taught there. If they do not read that, for it can in no place be read, it behooves them to follow the faith of which the Roman church is the guardian and from which their churches undoubtedly take their origins. Well, Innocent, as you can see, writes there as the arbiter of the true faith for his Western patriarchate. And with due confidence, a very sound and strong confidence, you would think, that can't be shaken, that many churches had good reason to accept his account to establish their place in the genealogy of apostolic and later missions. The surviving letters that the early popes wrote to Western bishops and kings show the Roman prelates reacting for, to news of heresy, conferring blessings, supplying collections of ecclesiastical law upon request from their own, no doubt, very hard-pressed and probably quite small writing office, and answering questions about clerical discipline in crisp and legal language, very much a Roman voice. 
It really is extraordinary to read these letters and imagine what lies behind them. The couriers leaving Rome, crossing the Alps or taking ship to Marseille, their retinues coming onto the grasslands of northern Europe, where butter replaced olive oil, where beer competed with wine, to reach Rouen, perhaps, or Paris, or Metz. There they would find the realms of barbarian rulers, Franks, Burgundians, Goths, and others, who were all in Roman eyes, either marauders or caretaker governors who were actually still subject to imperial authority in Constantinople. In their own eyes, of course, they were kings, members of the true ruling kin or kindred, with only the most residual notion that they might still be children in the family of a benign imperial father based in Constantinople. The popes maintained, in fact, a very high level of correspondence with consistently far horizons, and they used their letters to fashion a Roman obedience in the Western churches. An example from the year 404 shows Innocent I once more, this time writing to a bishop of Rouen, the prelate on the river Seine, whose city had only just ceased to be an important collecting point for military supplies to the province of Britannia, now abandoned. Britannia was about to go it alone, much as she is now. The matters discussed in the letter include sexual continence, the criteria for admission to the ranks of the clergy, advice for dealing with clerics who seek public office, very broad, as you can see, in comprehensive matters of discipline and organization. One provision in the letter requires that Rome should be consulted in all weighty matters, especially including di disputed questions of doctrine. For the Pope, the fundamental matters discussed in this letter concerning the governance of clergy and laity and doctrine are quite simply Romae Disciplina, the teaching of Rome. Was Roman singing part of this Roman teaching? To put it very simply and even crudely, did bishops in far-flung dioceses want their singers to sing like Romans? That's a wonderfully complex and fascinating question, for we're dealing with a time when politics and religion were not separate domains. I don't know when you think they became separate domains, but it's a long time after this. Uniformity of worship across different dioceses was deemed to express and indeed promote political unity within a kingdom. As you see, religion and politics hard to disentangle. When a right was shared between kingdoms, the realms shared something that combined what we think of as an alliance, a treaty, and a declaration of friendship, to which we should add a sharing of the peace of Christ. So the answer to the question, did bishops in far-flung dioceses want to sing like Romans, is essentially yes, but not at once, and not everywhere. But before we look into that, I would like you to hear some of the earliest recoverable chant from Rome. It seems to me that this music strongly suggests that a tradition of improvisation lies not far behind it. I mean by that, a practice in which the singer compiles music on the spot from elements learned during an apprenticeship that provided pre-shaped melodic ideas with ways to get started, ways to continue, ways to mark a pause, and so on. This is the Roman chant Puernatus for Christmas. Puernatus, <laughs> 
That was a genuinely Roman chant, Puer Natus Es Nobis, written down in the 11th century. The scribe for that used what was then the relatively new technique of writing music on a staff. That's why it's possible to, to sing it today. We can recover the melody. And obviously that's a system we still use. I'll come to that later in the lecture of this series. But what is the music you just heard? The current term for it among specialists is Old Roman Chant, and it comes indeed from the earliest decipherable repertoire of liturgical music used in Rome. How is it related to other European chants, especially what is popularly known as Gregorian Chant? Well, that remains one of the most controversial issues in the history of music, and the fact that modern scholars generally call Gregorian chant Frankish Roman chant will give you some idea how complex the ancestry and intermarriage of these two Western repertories may be. But one thing is clear. Throughout the Western kingdoms, the worship of Rome was associated with a quasi-imperial dignity and with great material opulence. In northern European lands, for example, where pepper and silk and incense too had become rare luxuries by the 8th century and where churches or royal courts were becoming islands of elite goods amongst a general sea of deepening material penury, the Church of Rome was the western outpost of a surviving Roman Empire that was becoming an essentially an Asian polity, or if you prefer, Byzantium. So imagine this, the scene is Rome in the 8th century. The Pope is riding in procession from the Lateran Palace to the appointed church for Mass, which he will celebrate amidst the columns and mosaics of Santa Maria Maggiore. Many officials of the Roman Church go before him and behind him, deacons, the chancellor, notaries, and so on. All the people of the clergy and Church of Rome are present, or at least they are represented. Many officials of the church bear sonorous and quasi-imperial or indeed military titles of office like primiserius notariorum, the chief of the notaries. Some are carrying linen cloths, others basins for the washing of hands. The subdeacon who will read carries the epistle book, the archdeacon the gospel book. And as the cavalcade proceeds, some people come forward and interrupt it to offer the Pope petitions as he passes, which they are allowed to do. Arriving at the church, the Pope changes his vestments of linen. A subdeacon calls out, choir, and they answer in the singular, I am present. Then he asks, who is going to sing the psalm? And they answer, so-and-so and so-and-so. In response to a sign, now the choir sings an introit that gives the Pope and his clergy the cue to enter the church from the sacristy with lights and incense. When the Pope gives the signal, the singers bring the introit to a close. The curia liaison follows, unraveling in performance like a roll of silk to be cut or extended as required, for the leader of the choir is charged to keep his eyes on the Pope at all times so that the Pope may signal to him if he wishes to change the number of Kyries. The celebrant then begins the Gloria in Excelsis when it is the appropriate season. Next, and it continues, a subdeacon reads the epistle from a raised platform, then a cantor holding his songbook or cantatorium as a sign of office mounts to the same place and sings the gradual. Soon another sings the Alleluia or a tract, according 
to the liturgical season. Well, that's not the end of it. With so many interventions to make, and I have only mentioned a few of them, the Roman singers bore a heavy responsibility for the ordered performance of the service. What's more, they faced a grave penalty, a grave penalty if something went amiss. The fourth in command of the choir faced excommunication if the assignment of chants to individual singers announced beforehand was changed in any way during the course of the service so that the Pope was left vainly telegraphing to the wrong cantor. And notice that I've just mentioned the fourth in command. That's how elaborate the hierarchy had become. A very Roman, imperial, and military thing. But although the decorum of the rite owed much to the professionalism of the choir, the singers did not enjoy much prestige. The need to install them in the church before the Pope's arrival denied them any place in the cavalcade, with its impressive display of liturgical books, textiles, and precious plate. And I suppose the most one can say for the singers of the Roman choir around 700 is that their corporate identity had been consolidated to the point where they were enough of a body, even a kind of club, to answer a summons in the singular, replying, I am here, ad sum, when the regional subdeacon called them at the beginning of the service. Now, Rome is not, in fact, the earliest place where singers can be found organized into a, a body with a structure of command. Your handout shows an epitaph dated to the year 525 from Mertola, a city in what was then southern Lusitania, and is now southeastern Portugal, next to the Spanish border. You can see it says, Andreos famulus dei, princeps cantorum, sacrosancte ecclesiae mertiliane. So, as you can see, the inscription refers to this otherwise unknown Andrew as the leader or first of the singers in the church of Mertola. That city lies on the Guadiana River, and it will be some time before we escape connections with the sea and major river routes in our search for these early singers. We will often find them by water. Now, your handout shows another early example, this time from a literary text, and once again, we're in a major port. For this comes from Naples and dates from around 500. Marinus Primiserius Cantorum Sancti Ecclesiae Neapolitane. So Marinus, chief of the singers of the Holy Church of Naples. To give these tiny fragments of text a wide context, let me direct you to the map on your handout. In a sense, it's got nothing to do with singers at all. It charts the distribution pattern of a particular kind of amphora, or ceramic jar, in the 5th and 6th centuries, used to trade and carry wine from Calabria and Sicily. And you can see, for example, there that there's a strong presence in, as you'd expect, given where these amphorae were made, in southern Italy. It moves up, we take in Naples, there's a concentration in Rome. We follow around the southern coast with, of uh, what's now France with its ancient Greek foundations coming to Marseille. And then you can see the line going up the Rhone, up the great riverine route, towards uh, Lyon, and so on. These are the patterns of energy that shape, I think, the world of singers at this period in the 6th, 7th centuries. This is where we tend to find them, close to water, close to major trading, tra trading routes. If Naples and Mertola had already organized their singers into a body with a command structure by the 500s, then it seems very likely, don't you think, that the Romans would have done the same of all people the Romans would do this. 
So here, once more, it's the sheer size of the Roman establishment that weighs heavily. The basilicas, churches, monasteries, and private foundations and churches outside the walls of Rome formed a really very complex and cellular structure reaching across the city, with each cell in the body of the church energized, supported by its own pattern of endowments, rights, and privileges. Arrangements made at any time for the training and provision of singers were perhaps liable to be scattered and difficult to centralize. There was a need in Rome more than anywhere else for some kind of organized recruitment and provision. Here now is another chant from the old Roman repertoire. Beato Servus, Blessed Servant. Given the magnificence and influence of Rome, it comes as a surprise to find that the recruitment of singers relied on something really very informal and perhaps even lowly, the care of orphans. Now, I've been using the term choir when translating Roman documents. The actual term is scola, whence, of course, our word school. Now, it could mean many things at the time, such as a military company, a sense which I think is by no means irrelevant here, or monks living in some form of what I would call familial cohabitation. By that I suppose I mean when clergy or monks would live together in a collegiate manner, often perhaps with a fairly loose organization, sharing a common chapel, a common table, and common endowments. It was used of monks, certainly. I would not have the monks living in their own cells, wrote one monastic author, but let them all remain in one scholar. Any attempt to envisage the forms that an organized group of singers could take in Rome should look to the many ways, I think, in which men and women could live there in some form of familial cohabitation. This is something, I suppose, that's virtually vanished from modern experience, save perhaps in certain public schools, maybe in some Oxford and Cambridge colleges where people are sharing a common table, a common chapel, living off a common endowment, and so on. At one extreme, this cohabitation could encompass singers who might share certain facilities, such as a lodging or a common chapel, as I've said, but at others it could include pupils receiving education within various kinds of charitable foundation. In other words, the history of the Roman choir 
belongs with many different and yet overlapping forms of cohabitation for the purposes of education, charitable care in hospitals and orphanages and liturgy. During late antiquity, let's say between 350 and 500 for the sake of round dates, the weak and disadvantaged gradually ceased to be citizens entitled to aid in the form of imperial doles and became instead the poor of Christ. The clergy gradually began to view the Christian populations of the cities in a manner that combined an imperial tradition of paternalistic care with an emphasis upon charitable provision for the weak. Already by the end of the 4th century, various forms of hospitals for the poor appear around the Mediterranean in Italy, Ostia and Rome, and in North Africa, in fact at Hippo in the time of Augustine. Such hospitals were, as you could expect, I should think, relatively small, taking their place in the cityscape of Rome where the characteristic new foundations comprised a church or chapel associated generally with a small private monastery or with a charitable institution, to quote one historian. The result may have produced a general appearance not so far, I think, from the, res from the scenes recorded in the 16th century before the demolition of old St. Peter's to create the Baroque Basilica that's there now. The 16th century engravings show files of buildings that appear to be little more than private houses in scale. Some of this charitable provision, of course, was for children. Boys, many of them probably orphans or children vowed to the monastic life by their parents, often appear in Roman documents from the 6th century onwards as a form of ecclesiastical human capital, the small change, so to speak, of the Roman human treasury, moved from place to place as the resources or needs of their masters dictated. These boys, many of whom were undoubtedly orphans and passing from hand to hand, were seemingly regarded as potential clergy that would eventually emerge from the many different contexts scattered across Rome where ad hoc arrangements had deposited them to receive some form of training. Now, a place for bringing up orphans is one of the earliest names for a foundation that had fed the Roman Schola Cantorum, the organized body of singers which becomes traceable by the 8th century. We have a document recording the diversion of funds to an orphanotrophium, or orphan house, lest the order of singers be wanting. Presumably just the same institution is meant when Pope Sergius II, who did, died in 847, is credited with repairing the Scola Cantorum, once called the orphanotrophium. What about England? Well, you may think, and you may be right, that my account in this lecture so far, indeed in this series so far, has been rather too keen to drink what Keats called a full beaker of the warm south. And you may be right, as I say. But now we must send our imaginations to a very different world, and one which I find it's very moving to contemplate. We go to Jarrow, to Sunderland and Ripon, to Newcastle, where the Roman wall runs by housing estates, to Hexham, where a stair descending from the nave of the church takes us back more than a thousand years into a crypt made from stones brought from a deserted Roman fort. In such remote parts of the Latin world, it was especially difficult, for obvious reasons, to sustain the rich materialism of Christian rites that were essentially Near Eastern, redolent of cedar 
and incense, filtered through Roman imperial opulence of fine fabrics, marble, gold and silver, to express the glory of the divine and the authority of the bishop. The Roman imperial administration at its height had been able to maintain excellent transalpine contacts. Networks of civil and military communication brought supplies of oil for lamps and military rations, incense for the imperial and other cults, silks for hanging and cloaks, and pepper, among many other spices, to the North European plain, even to remote places like Colchester, and more remote still to York, and more remote even than that, the fort of Vindolanda by the wall. By the 7th century, however, the Roman world system, it's certainly its maritime and tax system, was in complete disarray or had vanished on a Eurasian scale. The prolific Frankish historian Gregory of Tours, who died in 594, for example, finds no reason anywhere in his voluminous works to mention the Mediterranean ports of Arles, Foss, or Narbonne. He names only Marseille, suggesting that the long-distant contacts of the other ports were much diminished or even non-existent. And when a much greater historian, the Anglo-Saxon Bede, died at his monastery of Weymouth Jarrow in 735, he gave out what he calls a few treasures, one of which was some grains of pepper. Westerners had only to question travellers, or of course to undertake a pilgrimage, to find that the rites of worship were celebrated with great luxury and ceremoniousness in Rome that it was difficult to imitate in the north. The churches imported what they could, obviously. The mass vestments at Kildare in Ireland in the 6th century, for example, were reported to be vestimenta transmarina et peregrina, overseas vestments of foreign origin, and may have been purchased in Rome. Others travelled to the Eternal City on merchant ships as pilgrims to fetch what the greatest historian of the earlier Middle Ages, that is indeed Bede of Jarrow and Weymouth, calls the riches of spiritual commodities, spiritualium mercium. That is a potent expression, and it seems to me much might be made of it. A given state of liturgy, how you worshipped and chanted in an early medieval monastery or church, expressed a particular state of long-distance communication and trade or rather the strength of the determination to triumph over any impoverishments, the decline of such communications was felt to be imposing. So in this context, I think it's appropriate to hear one of the most luxurious of the old Roman chants that I have for you today. Viderunt omnes.
What did far distant Rome mean in a place so far from the eternal city, so distant from its markets as Northumbria? The answer is a very great deal, as we can see from a text entitled The Life of St. Wilfred. Now this shows its hero building a church at Ripon in 671 to 8 with blocks of dressed stone in the Roman manner, which was certainly taken from a ruinous Roman building nearby. Wilfred set up columns to create an interior adorned with gold and silver and varied purples, perhaps provided by textiles obtained in the markets of Rome during one of his several recorded journeys there. The columns, again, would be spoils from abandoned Roman buildings. He ordered a copy of the Gospels to be made for Ripon with golden letters on purple parchment, imitating the very imperial-looking examples he had seen in Rome. On his next visit in 679 to 80, he obtained relics, and I quote, for the building up of the churches of Britain, unquote, together with many other valuables that he purchased, and returned from his third visit in 704 with vestments of purple and silk to ornament the churches. From the late 600s onwards, signs of interest in the Roman chant pick up sharply with the Anglo-Saxon soldier turned abbot, Benedict Bishop. In 674, when many churches in England were still essentially long houses constructed of wood and roofed with thatch, Benedict built a monastery of stone after the Roman fashion at Wearmouth. Whatever else it may imply, the expression Roman fashion means large blocks of dressed stone. The house was dedicated to St. Peter, and in 681, Benedict established a second branch at nearby Jarrow dedicated to St. Paul, thus completing his invitation to the greatest saints of Rome, Peter and Paul, that they should direct their gaze to one of the northernmost frontiers of the Christian world. A great many miles, an oblique expanse of the North Sea, separated Weymouth and Jarrow from Rome. Benedict Bishop nonetheless laboured hard to establish what you might call a spiritual canal between the Tiber and the Tyne, where his twin houses were among the most exposed stations of the Catholic faith in the north, and they were exposed. The monks of Wearmouth Jarrow faced a belt of pagan lands across the North Sea, running down from northern Scandinavia to at least the modern Franco-Belgian border near Lille. Benedict Bishop knew what a missionary would find if he sailed round the north and eastern coasts of Britain. Frisians, Rugians, Danes and Old Saxons practicing heathen rites. Benedict Bishop repeatedly overcame the great distance that separated his monastery from the papal city, undertaking no less than six separate pilgrimages to assemble a library at Weymouth Jarrow, which must have had few parallels in the West in its day outside parts of Italy or possibly Seville. 
According to Bede, who spent his life at Jarrow reading these volumes and supplementing them with works of his own, Benedict also wanted, and I quote, the yearly cursus of chanting, together with its order of rite, chanting, and reading aloud. To accomplish this, Benedict returned from his fifth pilgrimage with John, a monk and arch-chanter of St. Peter's Basilica and abbot of St. Martin's, so that John might teach the monks the mode of chanting throughout the year. So, John the arch-chanter was one stream of information, so to speak, in the complex message that Benedict Bishop was bringing back from Rome with manuscripts, images, and other materials. In doing so, he created an outpost, a distant frontier fort of the Christian West, and he needed a singer to do it. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.